0: So good morning. It's good to see you. As Austin said, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we're so glad to have you with us this morning. We, all this spring, are doing a series just walking our way through the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's a very familiar text for a lot of people, Uh, and so we've come this morning. We're looking at all of these examples of faith from the Old Testament, and this morning we come to Noah, uh, who is a familiar character and a familiar story, but uh, instead of jumping to the, to the passages in Genesis, we're just going to be looking at this one verse in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. So if you would read along with me, it'll be on the screen behind me. It'll also be printed for you in your worship folder as we read God's word together. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household... By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot there in that, in that verse. Enough for us to talk about this morning. I, I don't like uh, that Hebrews chapter 11 has been called the hall of faith. I've said that, but I want to reiterate that because I'm afraid that it makes the people and the events described in that chapter sound exceptional when they are not. The people here being singled out, are not, are not being singled out because they did something that others cannot. In fact, just the opposite. They are examples of the kind of life that every person of faith should live. I know that because as you transition out of Hebrews chapter 11 into chapter 12, chapter 12 begins with an admon- admonition just to that. So you, hear, you read all of these examples, these stories of people of faith of old, and then as you come to chapter 12, the writer says, Let us also... And so we are. There's a certain level of imitation that we are meant to consider as we as we pay attention to these characters and to these stories. We come this morning to this figure Noah in verse seven, and Noah is a familiar character for many. Though it is strange, I have to say, the way that we have his story, at least the way his story has been sentimentalized, it's a story of judgment and wrath and darkness and evil. And yet we decorate our children's nurseries with Noah and the Ark imagery. It's just strange. It's really strange. Noah was an example of faith, though, we're told here, because of the way he he engaged with God in his word. Noah is an example of faith because of the way he stood alone. He stood against the whole world, the lone figure against the entire world in obedience to God. And so if you notice the sermon title this morning, Jonathan, who was a classics major in college at Florida State, which means he basically majored in Latin, uh, he was proud and impressed that we have a Latin phrase as as a sermon title this morning. Contramundum. Contramundum, because that describes Noah's life. Against the many, being obedient to God, even if it means you're all alone, even if it's only you and no one else. Because the people we read about here in Hebrews 11, and especially Noah, their life, didn't, their life of faith didn't, it wasn't enough just to kind of get them through, right? Get them out of bed on Monday and, and help them face the week. It was so much more than that. These people had such stability and equilibrium and poise and personal greatness, such fearlessness about them that they could go contra mundum, against the world against the whole world, to spit in the eye of the world and to remain obedient to God, even if it meant it was only them, even if it meant they were all alone. That's what you see in Noah's story. God told Noah to build an ark, and he did. It's that simple. And all the while, he's being laughed at and mocked. His friends are making fun of him. They think he's ridiculous, but he knows he's right. And, this, and he, has, he possesses the inner strength, the inner poise to do what's right, even if it means standing against the rest of the world. Now, here's the question for you and me. Do we have that kind of poise and fearlessness? Are we people that possess that same kind of inner strength and personal greatness? What we learn here is that it comes from faith. It's a feature of of faith, of being commended by God, as we talked about last week. So if you know that God approves of you, then it's okay if nobody else does. It can create this just inner poise that really makes you stand out from the rest of the world. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 27 when he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, therefore whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall, not me. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. That's what the psalmist says. And that is our subject this morning. Living with that kind of confidence so that you live unafraid. Even if it means you're standing against the whole world. Contramundum. And this is the legacy of Christianity. This is Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms where he comes before the ecclesiastical and and the civil authorities of the whole world to, re, to being forced to recant his teachings because they're making such a mess of things in the world and they say recant or we're going to kill you what do you say and he said i need a day to think about it it wasn't quite that heroic moment he said I, and he went away and he spent a day praying because he said lord could it really be could it really be me only me against everything else in standing for justification by faith And after 24 hours, he came back and they said, we can't or we killed. And he said, here I stand, I can do no other. I mean, it's the same when the college kid goes away to college or the high school student goes away to high school, you know, is in high school and says, everybody else is doing this. It feels like it's only me. Because sometimes it is. And that's what it means to live by faith. And so you have, to have, you have to have this inner sense of poise and fearlessness and strength to live in obedience to God. And that, and that is what Noah had, and that's, that's the example that he is to us. And if that's true of you, that it means that you'll be doing the things that Noah was doing here. And really, in this one verse here in Hebrews 11, there's three things we see that really characterize Noah's life. He was believing God, he was condemning the world, and then he was hiding in the ark. Those are the three points of the outline there. And if, you, if you're going to live a life of faith that, that is like his then you'll be doing the same things as well. You'll be believing God and condemning the world and hiding in the ark too. And so let's walk through each of those as we just look at this one verse here in Hebrews 11. First scene, what do we mean when we say that Noah believed God? And so faith is not just believing in God, it's believing God. And there's a difference. Let me say it again. It's not just believing in God, it's believing him. You have to let what God says about reality define you instead of what you see or what you feel. And then you commit to it. You commit to what he says. So we read, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark. He he didn't just believe in God, he believed God and he committed to that belief. Now, there's an anecdotal story that illustrates this well and I really hesitated whether to pull this out today or hold it in the bag for another week. But then I realized, you know, I could probably share it today and then let's be honest, I could share it again in a few weeks because you'll forget it. And I will too, and we can come back to it, and maybe so. Maybe we'll do this multiple times over the next few weeks. But it's it's a a story about a man named Blondin, who in the early 20th century he was somewhat of a I guess a circus performer. He decided he was going to to tightrope across Niagara Falls. And it became a newsworthy event, and so people there gathered to watch. And he made it out and back with no problem. And then he said to the crowd who had gathered there, "Who here believes I can do it again?" But this time pushing a wheelbarrow and the crowd began to shout, we believe, we believe. And so he went across the falls and back successfully pushing the wheelbarrow and the crowd went wild with amazement. And he asked, who here believes that I can cross over the falls a third time? But this time with a man in the wheelbarrow, we believe, the crowd shouted, we believe, and they were whipped into a frenzy and Blondin replied, okay, then who will be my first volunteer in the wheelbarrow? (laughs) <laughs> and as the story goes there was silence and the crowd dispersed <laughs> there's a difference between believing in God and believing him for, for years Noah in the middle of nowhere built an ark I mean think about what the assignment was the, the assignment from God was build an ocean liner in the middle of Kansas now why would he do that because God said that a flood was coming. He said judgment was coming. And it was something the world had never seen. And there were no categories. It didn't make any sense to anybody. When he tried to talk to other people about it, they laughed at him. They said, you're crazy, you old fool. And yet, if you read the story in the Old Testament over and over again, this is what stands out as you read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. It says, God said to do this, and Noah did it. He did all that God commanded I mean, it really stands out because it just, he, it, you know, 6.22, 7.5, 7.9, and so on. You read and you realize Noah just lived an obedient life. He staked his whole life on what God said, even though it didn't make any sense to him. Even though he didn't really have the categories, you know, to, to, to really deal with what God was saying. Even though he couldn't see it. Even if it, went, meant, even if it meant walking the road of loneliness, he got in the wheelbarrow. And that's what it means to live by faith. Now pay attention there in Hebrews eleven seven to the phrase, in reverent fear. Because that's where this came from. That's what, that's what this is describing. God was, And that means that God was the great reality of Noah's life. Not his circumstances, not his feelings. What God thought of him was far more defining to him than what other people might think of him. Belonging to God was the overwhelming, the overriding desire of his life. It says in Genesis 6 that he walked with God. He knew God personally. It didn't matter if obedience meant going against everybody else. He had God as a friend, as a companion. And that relationship mattered most. So that what God said mattered most, more than what other people might think. And this is what it means to fear God, that God is the great reality of your life, that his word is your compass. Don't listen to Lady A, let your heart, sweetheart, be your compass when you're lost, and it will, you know, follow it wherever it may go. That's terrible advice his word was his compass. It means that his love is the love you're living from, that you're controlled by what he says, not your feelings and not what you can see. You don't just believe in him, you believe him when he says this is the way to life. You get in the wheelbarrow, no matter the cost to you personally. So God came to Noah and said, listen, there's a wave coming and it's going to sweep everything that is against me away. And Noah believed him. But do you? Teenagers, listen, to you? When God says, you know, sex only, only inside of marriage, because if you cut the relationship between sex and total commitment, it creates an earthquake that becomes a tsunami that will sweep across your life. When he says, children, obey your parents, because if you don't, you'll drown. Do you believe him? Do you believe that living against what he says, brings a flood of judgment. No matter how good it feels, that there are consequences. So what defines you? What are you controlled by? Are you controlled by what God says? So you look out at the world, probably like Noah did, and it looks like there's no justice, there's no reckoning, but God says differently. He says, there's a wrath to come. There's a wrath to come that we must be rescued from. That's Thessalonians. There's a day when God will bring every wrong and every wrongdoer into judgment. And Thomas Manton, the famous Puritan said this, and this is, this is such great uh, wisdom. He said, the people in the story here, the people did not tremble with fear until the waters reached the rooftops, but Noah trembled with fear when God did but speak. There's a judgment coming and you can tremble now, and you should at God's word. Or you can tremble later. Faith doesn't just believe in God, faith believes him. But secondly, as as Noah was believing God, it also says here that he was condemning the world. Noah condemned the world. So we read, by faith Noah constructed an ark. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So if you believe God and not just believe in him, if what he says about reality defines you, then that immediately sets you against the whole world. That's the point. Just like Noah. For 120 years, Noah built an ark, and he preached as he built. And you, if you believe, your faith will cause you to take a stand against the world, condemning the world by your life and your words. The world is under the judgment of God, and the people of faith are set in the world by God himself as a physical reminder of that fact, of that future. So I don't want you to imagine that Noah went around scolding people everywhere that he went. Don't imagine self-righteous finger-wagging on his part. You read the word condemnation, and that might be the first thing that comes to mind, but I don't really think that's what we have here. This word condemned means that through his faith and the difference his faith made, Noah proved the world wrong by standing against it. If you believe God, you cannot live the same way as people who just believe in him or who don't believe, him at all, believe in him at all. I mean, it's just if you believe him and not just believe in him, then you can't live the same way as people who just merely believe in him or people who don't believe in him at all. Faith has certain implications that are unavoidable. So as you live out your faith and all of those implications, what happens is the difference becomes obvious and it should be so compelling and so authenticating that it causes the people around you who don't believe to question the way they're living their life. That's what this word means. So Noah, for 120 years, do you get that? Listen to that. 120 years, day after day, built an ark. I'm going to say it again. 120 years, day after day, built an ark in the desert. Is your obedience that obvious? Is anybody making fun of you because of the way you've chosen to live your life? Are you facing any consequences because of the stand you're taking? If so, take heart. You're doing it right. I hesitate to use this example because it, it, it feels somewhat self-aggrandizing. But uh, in my own life, as I was thinking about this, the, the thing that immediately came to mind in my own walk with the Lord was at, at Florida State when I was in college there, a group of f- friends a group of my friends uh, from the church that we were a part of, we decided to do a weird thing. And I really think we heard from the Lord, but we, we joined a fraternity. Uh, and uh, we joined a fraternity to be on mission, not to enjoy Greek life, but to condemn it. And that doesn't mean we refused to go to the parties and like held Bible studies in our room while everybody was drinking and whatever. No, we went to the parties, but we didn't drink. We didn't hook up with the girls. We took care of our friends We tried to keep people safe. We were the ones who talked to the police when they showed up, inevitably, because, of course, we were the only sober ones there. After parties were over in the middle of the night, we would walk people back to their dorms to make sure that they got home safe. And I I recognize how weird that sounds. But to my 19-year-old self, it sounded completely reasonable. And in truth, we saw a number of our fraternity brothers come to faith through those years. We saw many, many more admit the wrongness of their way of life. And it's even carried over, I, I, I hear from some of them even, even today, uh, but those admissions usually happen on a Friday night after way too many beers in moments of uninhibited honesty. You know what I'm talking about? Where that strange encounter that, that college boys have when they've had too much to drink, where my brothers would hug me or even like kiss me on the cheek affectionately and say things like, I love you, man. <laughs> Ashley was there for all of this. She can authenticate this. Or, (laughs) Rick's getting a kick out of this. I knew you would, Rick. Or or these moments of, my life is a mess, and I need to get my life together. You see, proving all of the ways of rebellion against God, all of the strategies of finding happiness apart from him wrong, by standing against them and insisting on another way, that's what it means to condemn the world. But we don't just do this with our lives, with our words too. Noah had a preaching ministry in Peter's letters. He's called a herald or a preacher of righteousness. And so there was a message that he was to deliver that the world stood under judgment because of sin. And so for 120 years, Noah, standing there in the shadow of this massive boat that he was building, delivered a message of judgment and mercy, pointing people to the way of salvation, which was right behind him. And so let's be clear, what, what is the gospel message? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I fear that at times we have not represented the gospel well in the way Christians talk about sin and salvation. So let's be clear about the gospel message and what it is and what it is not. And here's what it is not. The gospel message is not, hey, we're the good people and you're the bad people, so you should really think about changing your life and becoming like us. And yet I fear that's kind of what we've left people hearing from us. You know, become like us or else. Rather, it is a message of righteousness, we're told there, That comes by faith. So it would sound something like this. And I can imagine Noah saying it like this. Hey, listen, I'm a sinner just like you. And I'm under judgment too. But God in his mercy has made a way to escape the flood that is coming. It's this ark that I'm building. And you can come in too. All you have to do is believe. That's all you have to do. God will do the rest. See how simple that is? It's much different. And so I don't know if you're familiar with the story, with the book, um, Donald Miller wrote a book years ago called Blue Like Jazz, and in that book he tells a story, he was a student at the time at a very secular college campus in the Pacific Northwest where and every year on that campus, uh, you know, there's just a baseline on, on, on campuses of just debauchery and you know, sin and so forth, but But at this particular campus, there was one night of revelry each year where it just was taken up to another level uh, where it was, you know, kind of like dancing in the moonlight naked or whatever, or whatever. You know, I mean, that's trying to be funny, but you know what I mean. Like, just like uninhibited, no no holes barred. And so he and his friends, they were Christians, and they decided to do something just to kind of minister or evangelize there on that place. And so they decided they were going to build a confessional booth in the middle of campus. Uh, and so they started in the afternoon to do it, and as people were walking by, they're like, what are you doing? And they explained, and they're like, man, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, or that's the bravest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, we're going to make this confessional booth where people can come and confess their sins. And so they built it, and as the night wore on, maybe, I don't know who the first, the brave soul was to come in first, uh, but what they realized was they might have come in, come in expecting that these Christians would be there to take their confessions, but instead, all Donald Miller and his friends did was they confessed all of their sins. And it was so jarring to the, to those people that by by the end of the night he he talked about that there was a line I mean just a line around the corner and around the block for people because they'd never they'd never encountered religious people who didn't just demand confession from other people but who themselves went ahead and confessed sin. But that is that is what I think you see here, and it's a reminder to us that the world is starved for good news, and it will listen to humble people who lead with honesty about their own. Failures and struggles and the grace they've found in Jesus. People need to know that they sinned under the judgment of God for their sins, but even more, they need to know that there's hope for sinners. And His name is Jesus. And that takes us to the last point that Noah believed God and he condemned the world, but he also, thirdly, he hid in the ark. So we read, by faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah was saved. From the coming flood by the ark, and that is the ultimate lesson. If God's word is going to define reality for you, then the thing that distinguishes you from everybody else, the thing that causes Christians to stand apart from the rest of the world, the thing that takes us through the coming flood is grace. Grace is what makes you different, and so only a deep experience of grace can give you the inner poise and fearlessness that we've talked about that you need to take your stand. And by grace, I'm thinking of the phrase at the end of the verse there, if you look, where it says, he talks about being an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So in every other religion, and rooted in every human heart, is the conviction that righteousness, that this being being right with God, by being right, right, a right kind of life that makes you right with God, every other religion and rooted in every heart is the conviction that righteousness is something that you achieve through works. But in Christianity, right there, it says that actually righteousness is something that you have to receive, that it comes by faith. And faith is the opposite of work. So you don't work for righteousness and then Achieve it and give it to God as a gift. That's not, that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God has to work it for you and then give it to you as a gift. It's a righteousness that comes. Do you see that? It comes through faith. It comes to you. It doesn't come from you. It comes to you. It's actually from God. That's, that's the good news of Christianity. And they're actually two grace metaphors. And that's what we mean by grace. And they're two grace metaphors. And this is dangerous territory because if you start mixing your metaphors, things can get confused. But they're both so helpful. And they're both right here in this one verse that I think we ought to look at both of them. They're two grace metaphors. And I've mentioned the ark, but there's another one. So do you see the word heir there? It talks about Noah becoming an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, what's an heir? An heir is someone who's received an inheritance. An heir is someone who is rich because of what someone else has done. So when you get an inheritance, all the wealth that belonged to the other person is now yours, but you didn't earn any of it. Somebody else did. They put in the work. They made the sacrifices, right? They, They earned the wealth, but it all becomes yours, not because of your abilities, but because of the relationship that you have to the one who did all of the work. And that's the way righteousness works. You don't do it. You inherit it. You have to be an heir of it. And so faith does not entitle you to righteousness. Faith unites you in a relationship to the righteous one, Jesus Christ. He is the one who has achieved the moral record that God's justice demands. And if by your faith you're united to him, then what Christianity says is is all of his wealth becomes yours. All of his beauty is now yours. All of his credentials all of his standing with God, all of his rightness, it's now yours. See, that's not the only metaphor. There's another metaphor, and that's the metaphor of the ark. It's the obvious one. And so notice the ark there, and here's what this means, that there's a flood coming that will make the one that happened in Noah's day feel like a gentle rain shower in comparison. There's a tsunami that will sweep every one of us away, and it's the flood of God's judgment, and no one will be able to stand in their own strength. The weight of our sins and our moral records are going to weigh us down. We're all going to sink. And what the Bible says, what the message of Christianity is, is there's only one who can float in the sea of judgment, and his name is Jesus. In the Gospels, he's the one who walks on water. He's buoyant. There's no sin in him to condemn him, He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. And he can stand on the day of judgment. And here's the good news. If he can stand on the day of judgment, then you can too if you hide yourself in him. Jesus is the ark, okay? That imagery in in Genesis is is a a typology of Jesus himself. The winds and the waves are beating on him, on that great day of judgment, but inside we're safe and dry, that's the imagery. And so the only way, there's only one way, to be saved from the wrath to come. The Bible warns about a wrath that is to come. And the only way to be rescued from it is to believe in Jesus, to trust in his standing, not yours. To rely upon his strength and not yours. To make his righteousness your righteousness and not your own, and to hide yourself in him. Now, what's the connection as we round to a close between this and standing against the world? contramundum, right? Well, here's the thing. If your ark is your moral record, then you won't have the confidence and the poise that you need to stand alone and take all of the criticism and the loneliness and, and just the hard things that come. There will be too many holes in your boat. You'll spend all of your time patching holes as you sink. If you go into the storm whatever it is, relational conflict or suffering or whatever, with your moral record, then you're going to take on water until you sink. But if you're hiding in Jesus, then you can go through the storms with peace. You can go through the storms of your own sin and still be confident that God has not turned against you. You can face the criticism of others and even agree with some of what they say. Wouldn't that be a thing? And know that it doesn't change anything about your standing with God. You can go through intense suffering And not be moved because you know that God will never leave you or forsake you because the love of Jesus for you is the only thing that can give you the inner strength and fearlessness that you need to take your stand. And here's the thing, it's all grace. And you know what that means? It means that that you can be confident but without becoming overly self-confident. If it's all grace, then you can condemn the world but without being condemning. There can be strength and boldness Fearlessness about you, but also humility and, and gentleness and tenderness with others. And that's the kind of people the world will listen to. But let's not miss the big picture here, okay? The big picture of Noah's story. And I would uh, I would illustrate for you this way. I mean, the, the story of Noah in the Bible from beginning to end. Let's just not miss the big picture. Uh, years ago, before we planted Redeemer in 2008, I had the privilege of traveling um, quite a bit. Uh, All over the world, and one of the places that I went to a number of times was India, and I fell in love with that place. And if you remember, in 2004, in December of that year, there was a tsunami that that swept across southern India and Indonesia, killing hundreds of thousands of people. It was just utter devastation. And I had the privilege of being able to go uh, that next year there to bring some relief and some help to the people. We went to a place on the coast of India. There's a little town uh, where there's a chapel, and there's it's, 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 it's thought to be the place where Thomas, the disciple of Jesus, landed to bring the gospel to India. And so there's a lot of stuff there, and we went there. And, um, and our guides there, we went through the town. I mean, I just can't describe, because of course there's no like hurricane enforcement like building code, right? I mean, nothing. I mean, the wave came and swept miles inland and destroyed things for miles uh, inland there's nothing there and they took us down to the beach and they stopped us at this spot and they said, you know look over here and down the beach to the right was what, what used to be or what was' at one time a Danish fort with 25 foot high walls that had just been reduced to a pile of rocks because the wave had come and was high enough to come over the wall and just and just reduce it to rubble. And destroy everything in its path, and so the fort was just completely washed away. Down to the left was what was what was left of this huge Hindu temple, this very famous place of worship there, with tall spires, also just completely, almost completely washed away. You could see the domed ceiling, this beautiful, beautifully ornate domed ceiling, about a hundred yards out into the surf, just kind of stuck there in the sand. And so we were there, and you, I mean, you're we just taking these two things in, and, and then right in front of us along the beach our guides took us to this place so imagine that to the right and to the left and then right in front of us was this the stone cross monument that was about 10 feet high Uh, nothing really impressive it would not have been nearly as impressive as the fort to the right or the temple to the left but there it stood it would have been submerged in 30 feet of water, crashing into it with enough force to level buildings for miles and miles inland. Everything else for miles had been reduced to nothing, but there it stood. And our friends called it a miracle because Indian Christians are want to think of everything as a miracle. And um, I don't know about that, but I was moved nonetheless. And here, and here is what I would say to you this morning. It's an image. Just leave it up there, Joe, if you would. It's an image for us, I think, as we consider what we've talked about here Just this, that when the flood of judgment rolls over the world, the only thing that will be left standing will be Jesus and all who are hidden in him. And the Hebrews writer has a phrase to describe this. He calls it the power of his indestructible life. Though nothing else remains, on that great day, though nothing else remains, he will stand. And our only hope, friends, our only hope in life and death, is to be hidden in him. This is what the famous hymn writer Augustus Toplady was referencing when he wrote this very famous hymn, Rock of Ages. Listen to the words. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Jesus. Wash me, Savior, or I die amen that is the cry of faith so let's cry out together Uh, this morning would you pray with me so father we would say to you uh, that we have spent our life in worthless pursuits thinking that in our own strength and in our own doing we might make a life for ourselves that would stand up against the tidal wave of your great judgment upon the earth how foolish and i pray that 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 maybe for the first time this morning for some of us that you would convince us of the wisdom of turning away from all other projects, of saving ourselves from the wrath to come, except to hide in the beauty and the obedience and the power of Jesus' indestructible life. Because he is the one who on that great day will stand, and with him all those who are hidden in him. And with the knowledge of of that, with the knowledge of the ultimate standing that we have with you coming into our lives even in this moment, would it produce in us this kind of poise and fearlessness that we've seen in so many others, in Noah, in Martin Luther, in the faithful college student who spends Friday and Saturday nights alone because of their obedience to Jesus, whatever it might be, of all of those in this long legacy of faith who have taken their stand against the world. May we be a people like that too, but but with that poise and that fearlessness, but also with that grace and that graciousness, so that the world might truly come to know, so that we might be ambassadors, as you call us to be, of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, so that all might flee the wrath to come. Help us, but even now, we need first to make our own confession, and that's what this song is as we sing here at the end. It is a confession that we have no strength in ourselves, but there is a hiding place, there is one that we can hide ourselves in. There is a shelter from the coming storm, a shelter from every storm. And in him, we can have the strength and peace and poise and security and fearlessness that we need. And so turn our hearts now to him as we sing this song together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then if you're in him, then nothing can get to you. That's the point, right? There's this immunity that comes from all of the the condemnation and the fear and all of that. If you're truly living into that, that you can go, then hidden in Him, to take your stand, to go, and to get in the wheelbarrow. Not just believe in Him, but to believe Him, and to live your life according to what He says. And so that's the call now, as He as He commissions us, as He sends us into the world as ambassadors of the grace that He that He that that, that He's showing. There is a judgment coming, and we can we can we can come to Him on the terms of peace that He gives now. Or we can come to him on that great day in great trouble. And that's the, that's the call, to be ambassadors of that good news, of the olive branch of peace that's extended to the world. So go condemning the world, hiding in the ark, believing him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.